be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So how does Paul begin this one long sentence? Usually the the indicator of what he's wanting to talk about is what he brings up the first thing. Blessed be God. Paul says here that the Christian life is to be God-focused because the Christian life is God-blessed. You need to be God-focused because you are God-blessed. Now this word blessed, and I know I'm giving you some uh, Greek lessons this week. The Greek word for blessed is eulogeo. You're going, okay. We get our English word eulogy from this word. Ever been to a funeral, heard someone give a eulogy? What are they normally doing? Praising, giving commendation, speaking well of the person they're standing up and talking about. Paul says, bless God. Give praise to God. Give God commendation. Speak well of God. Give a word of praise. Give praise for the goodness of God. That's what he's calling us to do here. The Christian life is to be deliberately focused on praise to God because all blessings come from who? They come from God. God is the source of every blessing that you and I have. And in case you missed, as I said earlier, God is the focus of the Bible. God is the focus of Ephesians. Paul begins this wonderful passage telling of the gospel uh, by being radically God-centered. I don't think we could read anything that Paul wrote and ever be missing uh, or to understand what Paul's focus is. He's radically gospel-centered. He's radically Christ-centered. And by the way... Whose will is it that it be that way? Verse 1, by the will of God. The gospel begins with God. It doesn't begin with us. That's the difference between the gospel and religion. Religion begins with who? Man. The gospel always begins with God. Religion is the idea that every person is on this quest and every person is looking for God. You read your Bible carefully, you will not see that. Everyone is not seeking God. Romans chapter 3. The Bible, if we read it, it shows us that God is He's calling out to, to man. The Bible tells us that God takes the initiative with us. Again, Romans chapter 3, no one seeks after God, right? No one goes after God. God has to seek us out. I say that again here because we're told that God is the one giving the blessing. Because of that, we are to bless God. We are to speak well of God. We are to declare His greatness. The first three words, Paul says, here's what you need to do. You need to bless God. Now, a point of application. This should give us a clear understanding of our purpose as individuals and as a church. Right? It's all about who? You as a Christian individual and us as a church, it's all about who? It's all about God. Everything we do individually and as a church should have the goal of declaring the greatness of God. If we do anything and it does not lead to that end, then what we're doing is not biblical as an individual or as a church. So we need to ask ourselves as individuals and as a church, do the things we do the things we seek to do, to the end of that, point to God. Is our purpose in doing these things to exalt God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, God's Ultimate Purpose, listen to what he has to say. Much of the trouble in the church today is due to the fact that we are so individualistic, so interested in ourselves, and so self-centered. 
That is the strange mistake of this present time. We must not start by examining ourselves and our needs. We must start with God and forget ourselves. Is that what Paul's saying here? You need to forget about you and you need to focus on God. Now let me give you just a break that down in some practical application. Uh, parents. I think I can say this because I am a parent. Don't make your children the center of the universe. Our culture has this idea that man is the center of the universe. That's pretty obvious in the last year, particularly in our country, right? Man is the center of the universe. What we see here about God being our main focus, that's difficult for man. In particular for your children, if they are made to believe that they are the main focus. Love your children. Take care of your children. But never put them in the position where they think of themselves as the center of the universe. Because who is at the center of the universe? God is. And you think, my child would never do that. Don't say never when it comes to your children. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul use this title in this context, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is, this is pretty interesting, and I discovered studying this this week. Jesus is the Son of God, which makes Him what? Eternally God, right? And we know that Jesus laid aside His glory, and He took on Himself the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the Bible tells us that there's no salvation outside of Jesus, Right? Amen. There's no salvation outside of Jesus. All that we receive from God, we receive through the Son of God, Jesus. In other words, listen to this. The Father of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, becomes our Heavenly Father when we come to Him through Jesus. Because God is Jesus' Father. He becomes your Father when you're born again. These are not just words to fill up the page. The Holy Spirit is making a point. The Father of Jesus is your Father when you come to know Jesus Christ. In other words, the Gospel is that when you get saved, you get God. You get God. We're to bless God. We're to praise God. We're to focus on God because why? Verse 1, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has blessed who? Us. Now, He's acted kind toward us. Now the question is, who is us? Would that be a good question to propose? Who is us? If you get this wrong, listen, if you get this wrong, everything else, for the remainder of this paragraph, this one long sentence, it messes everything up if you get the word us wrong. Look at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, with the will of God, to the saints. What is written here is written to saints. It's written to believers, to the followers of Jesus. God has blessed, He has acted with grace toward us, the saints. God has blessed us in Christ. The cause of the believer's blessing from God comes through Jesus. The blessing is through Jesus and His life, death, and resurrection. Through the gospel, the good news is that we've been reconciled to God and we've been saved from the wrath of God. Us, believers, have been saved from God's wrath. Notice what He has blessed us with. 
He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I, I failed to mention this to you, but in chapter 1, and not chapter 1 alone, but the Trinity shows up here in chapter 1. The word Trinity doesn't show up, but it shows up. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit here in chapter 1. Here the Holy Spirit shows up. The blessings are from the Holy Spirit. They're spiritual blessings, which means they're what kind of blessings? If the Spirit gives them, they're supernatural blessings. These blessings, listen to me carefully, are not material blessings. Okay? Now, Joyce and Joel might have a problem with that. And you know who I'm talking about. These are not prosperity gospel blessings. They are spiritual blessings. They are supernatural blessings. Now, God promises to meet our needs, right? Not maybe all of our wants, but He promises to meet our needs. And He knows that our deepest need is not physical, but it's what? Spiritual. These blessings are for the Spirit. They are spiritual blessings. Notice it says these blessings are in the heavenly places. Which simply means these blessings come from God through the Spirit. All the blessings that the Spirit works in us come from who? They originate with who? God. They are a gift from God the Father. Now this phrase, in the heavenly places, as we go through Ephesians, it will show up five times. And nowhere else do we see this phrase in the New Testament. And don't miss one very important word. Not that the other ones aren't, but notice one very important word. Every spiritual blessing. Not some, not a few, but how much church? Every spiritual blessing. Now you're probably asking, like I was this week, what are these blessings? I want to know what those are, right? Remember, they're spiritual blessings, the Holy Spirit blessings from the Father in heavenly places. They're blessings like this. Knowing that you are forgiven of your sin. Knowing that you are reconciled to God. Knowing that you've been forgiven by the blood of Christ. Knowing that you don't stand under the judgment and the wrath of God to come. Is that a blessing? Absolutely, that's a blessing. It's the knowledge that you as a believer have been reconciled to God. You're no longer His enemy. The Holy Spirit writes the law of God on your heart. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that gives you the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. This is what Jesus was referring to in John chapter 10 verse 10. When He said, I came that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Prosperity gospel will take that and twist that to say, what? God is here to bless you with all that you desire and all you want. Something in that vein. But Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. Spiritual blessings. That is the abundant life. Knowing that you are redeemed and reconciled and forgiven of your sin. Knowing that nothing in this world can ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that not a blessing? To know that nothing can... That's abundant life, is it not? You can live and have everything this world has to offer, but if you don't have Jesus, you don't have an abundant life. These blessings are ours no matter what else is going on. And let me give you a form of application here straight from the Scriptures. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 3. 
If these blessings, the spiritual blessings, are what makes our life more abundant, listen to what Colossians chapter 3 says to us. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. See the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What did he say? Seek and set your mind on those things. Not on the things of this life. Now is it wrong to have things? Don't go away saying the preacher said it was wrong to have them. No, that's not what I'm saying. Every good gift comes from God the Father. But these spiritual blessings are things that the Bible says we need to seek and set our mind on. Why does God do that for us? Because He knows that the deepest need of our life is the spiritual side of it. We can have, again, we can have everything in the world today and tomorrow. The world can be what? Turned upside down. But what happens to the spiritual blessings? What happens to that knowledge of knowing you're right with God? Nothing takes that away. Looking at your handout, verses 4 and 5. God's blessings are of His own doing. God's blessings are of His own doing. <coughs> Paul is going to list the blessings. Here they come. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Notice how verse 4 begins. Even as, some of you may have a translation that says just as. Or according to, maybe. This indicates the flow of logic. Just as God... Verse 3, blessed us in Christ, so also, verse 4, He chose us in Him. Now why is Paul saying this? God, it says here, chose us, saints, in Him, in Jesus. Now, I realize that this is where things get sticky. They become difficult. And here's what I want to say to you. You need to hear everything I have to say, not just parts of it, okay? This is yes. Alright? This is yes. The word choose means to select or pick for oneself. Paul says, just as God the Father blessed us in Jesus, so also He chose us. When did God do that? Notice what it says, before the foundation of the world. Now you're going... When was that? Genesis chapter 1. Listen. Verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that happened, before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. And here's what I want you to remember. Verse 1, Paul, by the will of God, says these things. Just as God blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, so you also need to know, Christian, that before the foundation of the world, God set His love on you. Before you existed in space and time, God set His love on you. God did not do that because of something that you would do. You trusted Jesus because of something that God started before the foundation of the world. 
Christians are the object of God's eternal choice. And here's why I say that. Sometimes people explain that by saying this. If you've ever heard this, you just give me a head nod. I've heard it explained this way. God gets a vote. Satan gets a vote. You cast the deciding vote. That's what election, that's what choosing is. That's what some people say this doctrine is referring to. God gets a vote. Satan gets a vote. You cast the deciding vote. Now what's the problem with that? Here's what I would ask you. Give me chapter and verse where you find that in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. And it's not what Paul is saying here either. And Paul is speaking by the will of God. Paul is not talking about a choice that you make. He's talking about a choice that God makes. And notice, why did God do that? Verse 4, that or so that that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Read this carefully. God did not choose us because we're holy. He chose us in order that we, what? Should be. That we should be set apart and blameless or without fault. And here's what I want to say about this. The most fearful thing a person could ever do is stand before God and not be holy and not be blameless. You ever heard that saying, the worst day of my life? You have no clue what the worst day of your life would be until the time comes, God forbid, that you stand before God and you're not counted holy or blameless. How do we stand before God holy and blameless? Notice it happens even as He chose us. How? In Him. And as I said earlier, this this is a sticky subject. Um, It causes a lot of angst between people. It sometimes causes people to sin against one another by being unkind to them. But that should not be the case. Notice carefully Paul's response. The Holy Spirit's response. Paul sees it as a matter of what? Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. What is it for Paul? It's a matter of praise and a matter of great comfort for Paul. Notice what the motivating factor for this was. In verse 5, God's love is what brought about Him choosing. In love, He, God, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Why did God do that? Because of His what? Love. God did that beforehand. That's what that means. Predestined means that He did that in love. Now, this is not the only place this shows up. It's in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, listen. For you are a people holy. This is God talking to Israel. The Hebrew people. For you are a people holy. To the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be His people for His treasured possession. Listen, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What did God just say to them? I chose you over who? Everybody on the face of the earth. 
Listen, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you. The book of 1 John says we love God. Why? Because He what? First loved us. Now, I think some of you know this. If you read the Old Testament, the Jewish people were not this group that were really dedicated to God. Right? And as a result, God said, hey, I'll take them. They're pretty good people. I'll, I'll take them. God chose them because He what? He loved them. Notice the result. In love, He, God, predestined us for what? Adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. I want to start with the last phrase and kind of work my way backwards. Why did God choose beforehand? It was according to what? The purpose of His will. God says it was because I wanted to. It was the purpose of His will. Some of you have translations that read the good pleasure of His will. Why did God do that? It's because God loved us and He wanted to. It was according to His purpose. What did God do according to His good pleasure, according to His will? He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. As sons. Now, uh, the word sons causes some people some problems. Particularly in our day and time. They think our English translations should read sons and daughters. Well, the Holy Spirit didn't think so. And that's why the word sons is in it. Now listen, when we read the Bible and we read a verse that says the word man, it can either be talking about what? An individual man or it can be talking about who? Mankind in general. You understand that, right? You've got that. The word sons, again, causes people problems. Now here's what the Holy Spirit, or why the Holy Spirit inspired just the word sons and not daughters. Are you ready? In this point in time in history, biblical times, who was considered to be the full heir of a family? The son. Which son? The firstborn son. Here's what God is saying to you when He says, I predestine you for adoption to Myself as sons. All of us, the saints, are firstborn heirs. We are adopted as full heirs. We get it all. Just like the son, the firstborn son would get it all. You get it all. God adopts you and you get it all. God adopts us as his son, full heirs. Notice it says he did that through Jesus Christ. It's not something to do with you. It's all about God. Blessed be God. He has adopted us as sons. He has made us His. Does it not do something to you know that God loves you? Our response should be, why? You ever think that? Why does God love me? God says it's because you are mine. Why do you love your children? It's because they're what? Them's mine. Those are mine. And that means something, right? To you, it really means something when you tell people those are mine. Regardless of how they may be acting right now, they're mine. 
You know, God does that with you too if you belong to Him. Regardless of how you may be acting at the moment, you're His, right? It's because you're mine. And again, we say, well, why? I only hear God say, I wanted you. I came to get you so that I, you would have a father. There's never been a time, Christian, in the history of the universe when your name was not on the heart of God. Never a time when that was the case. Now, let me stop here for a second and kind of do a, a sidebar, if you will. You've heard this idea, you know, God chose us and, and that may be causing some problems and I understand that. I'm not going to dismiss that. But at this point, if you're a Christian, you may be saying, well, did not choose God? To which I would say, yes. And you did so freely. But you did so only because in eternity past, God had first chosen now listen, you would ask, well, didn't I decide to trust Jesus? To which I would say, yes, and you did so freely. But only because in eternity past, God first decided for you that you would do that. Here's what I'll say. This doctrine is in the Bible. You can't jump over it or go around it. Second, I'll say this, it's difficult to understand, right? This is Yes. Here's what I want you to understand. Nowhere does the Bible dismiss the mystery of this doctrine. It doesn't try to give you a full explanation so you will fully understand it. That's why God is the God He is. If we understood everything about God that there was to to be understood, then God would not be what? God. There's a mystery there. Did God choose me? Yeah. Did you choose God? Yes. Those two work together. And here's what I want to tell you. I cannot explain to you how that works. You know why I can't explain it to you? Because the Bible doesn't explain it. It just says, here it is, He chose, you believed. And we take those and we put them together and we trust that God is sovereign and He knows what He's doing. Verse 6, why God has blessed us. The Holy Spirit gives these words to Paul. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 6 goes back to verse 3 and shows us that all of God's spiritual blessings in Christ lead to what? The praise of the glory of His grace. Here's what you do, saint. Here's what you do, us, adopted son, chosen one. You give glory to God. God blessed us with spiritual blessings, which I just named those off. And He did so for what purpose, church? For the praise of the glory of His grace. Why were we predestined to salvation? Why were we predestined to adoption? For the glory of God. Now, this Hebrew word for glory has the idea of being heavy or something that's weighty. And in the New Testament, the word means to have an opinion or a view of something. In other words, it points to God's worthiness, His reputation, His honor. Here Paul focuses on one attribute that calls for our praise, and it's what, church? The glory of God's grace. His undeserved favor. So the main goal of our salvation, which in the context of this passage, rests on God choosing and predestining us. Our salvation should bring us to an awareness 
of the glory of God and we boast in Him. If we add anything of our merit, worth, or works with His grace, listen, we corrupt God's grace when we begin to add ourselves into that. Notice lastly in verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. The Beloved is Jesus. Paul is telling us here that God's saving love to us, His glorious grace which cost Him, what? His Son. That grace is freely given to us, but man, it come at a great cost, did it not? Which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God freely gave Jesus and it cost. And both of those things are crucial for you and I to understand. Salvation is a free gift, but it what? It was an enormous price that was paid. Let me make some application here, particularly about these verses overall. Point number one of application. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember what you were before God's grace found you. Remember what you were before you came to know Jesus. And here's why I say that. You will never truly appreciate God's grace until you get a biblical perspective on the depths of sin from which God saved you from. You will never appreciate the gospel until you realize what it is that God has saved you from. Paul will say in chapter 2 when we get there that we were dead in our sins, sons of disobedience, and children of wrath. How many of you like being that? I didn't think so. In other words, you were not clean, well-mannered, bright, attractive, and had great potential when God picked you for adoption. Instead, you were dirty, defiled, disobedient, disrespectful, and rebellious. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were what? Still sinners. Christ died for us. When did God demonstrate His love toward us? While we were what? On our way to becoming good people? While we were still what? Rebellious, disrespectful, disobedient, running away from God, hating God. God demonstrated His love while we were in that position and Jesus came and died for us. Listen, remember where you were before God's grace found you. Number two, here's what I want to say about this doctrine of election. Here's what I come to understand about this myself. I do not have to doubt my salvation. And I know there are some who teach that you can lose your salvation. And I'm going to be as nice as I can about that. That's hogwash. Amen. That is not in the Bible. I know where they go to get that, and I'd be glad to talk to you about that, but that is not in the Bible. You cannot lose your salvation. Your salvation is secure. Why? Because you chose God or because God chose you? You can never lose your salvation. Listen, God does not unchoose. And I know that's not a word. It's not in the dictionary, but God does not unchoose. There's a doctrine that refers to God as being immutable, which means He's unchanging. God doesn't change His mind and go, this guy is just a mess and I can't put up with him no more and He throws you back. That is not what happens. God does not unchoose. Now here's the last point of our case I want to give you as it relates to this doctrine. This doctrine should fuel evangelism. Listen to me carefully. 
I share the gospel, and you should share the gospel because God says that people will be saved because He chose them before the foundation of the world. It's a guarantee that it's going to happen. Does God ever lie? Why does He not lie? Because He can't lie. It's guaranteed that people will be saved. I share the gospel because I have a guarantee that people are going to be saved. Secondly, I also share the gospel because of what I see in verse 13. Look down at verse 13. Here's what I was talking about earlier where God chooses, but yet you believe. You choose as well. Notice what it says in verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's two things that stick out there. In Him you also, when you what? Heard. People are chosen, but they still got to what? Hear the gospel. And they must what? Hear it and what? Believe it. That tells me that if I share the gospel, it's a guarantee that people are going to be saved, but they've got to what? They've got to hear the gospel from me, and I've got to call them to believe in that gospel. Now, here's the last thing. If you don't get anything I said, you make sure you get this. Election does not mean that only a few will be saved. It does not mean that only a few will be saved. That's kind of where your mind runs, right? Then only a few people are going to get saved. The Bible discredits that view. I'm going to give you two passages. One of them, when I say it, you're going to be able to quote it. Because we talk about it on Wednesday night. About every Wednesday night we talk about this. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. The harvest is plentiful. You know what that word means? Many, great, large. The harvest is what? It's talking about the people coming into the kingdom. The harvest is what? A few people? A lot of people, right? As we say in the South, a whole bunch of people will be saved. But the problem in Luke 10 is that there's not enough what? Laborers. Does that cause you a problem? If God says a bunch of people are going to be saved and there's not enough people to tell them, what should that drive us to do? Tell people. Notice the words of the Lord of the harvest as I read that verse. It points to God's sovereignty. If He's the Lord of the harvest, it means He's what? He's in control. He's the one who will send out laborers. Do you get that? There's thousands and millions of people that are going to come to Christ, but somebody's got to do what? Go tell them. So what does Jesus say? I'm in control, so who do you pray to to raise up labors? Pray to me to send people out to get those whole bunch of people. This doctrine does away with the idea that only a few people are going to be saved. The Bible says there are going to be thousands and millions of people come to Jesus, but they've got to do what? They've got to be told the gospel. Now here's my application for you. Simple. Do you pray for lost people to be saved? Do you pray for laborers? Do you obey this command? That's more important. And let me say this. I'm going to give you a perfect avenue to do that in. Alright? Now you can do it at home riding down the road, but I'm going to give you a perfect avenue in which you can do that. Anybody want to guess when it is? Wednesday nights, when we gather as a church to pray. 
We pray for lost people, don't we? We pray for our lost family members. We pray for opportunities to share the gospel. We pray for missionaries. We call people out, maybe silent. We pray for people to be saved, right? We pray to, we pray to Jesus to raise up what? Laborers. You might be saying, one person can do that. I'm well aware of that. But listen, I don't think God meant for one person or two or three to do it. He meant for what? Us to do it. And listen, when God's people come together and they get a focus on the losses of this world and we pray to our God to raise up labors, do you think He's going to do that? Absolutely He's going to do that. But He tells us we must do what? We must pray for labors. One more passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5-11. through 11. Don't turn there and listen to me as I read. Again, this is an argument for why the doctrine of election does not mean that only a few will be saved. When he, Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion, which is a soldier, and by the way, the centurion was a Gentile. Don't forget that. A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, and he's suffering terribly. What is the centurion wanting Jesus to do? My servant needs help. Come, right? Does anybody know what Jesus does? Who, who is this guy? He's a what? A Gentile, and Jesus is a what? A Jew. And you know from biblically studying that Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles were considered what? Dogs, worthless people. You have a Gentile coming to Jesus, and he's asking him, and in verse 7, what does Jesus say? And he said to him, I will come. That blows me away. That Jesus, in the midst of all these Jewish people, says, I'll come to your house. I'll come to you, Gentile. And right now, if you're sitting here, you're a Gentile, you ought to be jumping up and down about that. I'll heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. What's he saying? You don't need to come, Jesus. You just need to speak. He says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say, Go. I say to one, Go. And he goes, and to another, Come. And he comes, and to my servant, Do this. And he does it. Listen to what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, He heard this man's faith, it says Jesus marveled. Who marveled? There's two times in the Bible when Jesus says Jesus marveled. One time when He sees faith, and the other time He marvels because of unbelief. He marveled. At what? Faith from a Gentile. And He said to those who followed Him, Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found with such faith. What's He saying? The very chosen people of God, the Jewish people, don't even have faith like this. But who is this centurion? He's a what? A Gentile. Now listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, many will come. What's the word many mean? A whole bunch. It's the same word as plentiful in Luke 10.2. I tell you, many will come, listen to this, from east and west. Now when you go east and you just keep going, where do you end up at? East. If you go west and you keep going, where do you end up? You see the point he's making? Many will come from where? Every direction. And listen to what he says next. And will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob in the kingdom of God. You know why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned here? If you're here on Wednesday nights, you know why, right? Because God made a promise that through Abraham, the families of the earth would be blessed. That a, Jesus, that a Savior would come and it would be Jesus and all the families of the earth, which are what? Gentiles would be blessed. And Jesus says, many are going to come and they're going to gather in the kingdom of heaven. God's choosing does not mean a few, but it means that many will be saved. But you and I still have to share the gospel. Now here's my question. Do you believe that many will be saved? Do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Because Jesus said so. If we believe it, then we'll be telling more people about it. Right? If you believe what Jesus says, and I find myself here, I'm, I'm preaching to myself. If I believe this, then I will do what? I'll be telling more people about Jesus. Let me say one last thing here. To those of you who are here today and you're lost and you don't know Christ, you may have this question. How, how do I know if I'm chosen? That's a good question if you're here today and you're lost to be asking, right? How do I know if I'm one of the adopted? I said it was a good question, but I, I kind of that's not right either. I think it's the wrong question for you to be asking. You shouldn't be asking that question. And here's why I say that. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive Him and believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. What does that verse tell us? If you're here today and you're lost, you don't need to worry about whether I'm chosen or I'm before the foundation of the world. This verse says you need to receive Jesus and you need to believe in Him. That's all it's required of you. You don't need to try to figure that other stuff out. So here's my point today. If you're here and you're lost, you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, three words. Come to Jesus. That's what you need to do today. Let's pray.